You're listening to the CFP Podcast with your host, Sheffy, the college football writer, the source for your college football fix with picks, clicks, and conversions over kicks. Now, here's your host, Sheffy. Hey, college football fans. We are back with part two of episode 15. I know it's been a couple days since we released part one, our look at the preseason college football magazine review. We looked at Phil Steele, Athlon, and Lindy's publications, so give them a look. Go back and listen to episode 15, part one. Well, this is part two, and part two, we're getting into a little bit of news and notes as we typically do. We get into our play caller segment, which we talked about, and then we'll also end by listening to my interview with Coastal Carolina head coach Jamie Chadwell, the college football coach of the year in many circles in 2020. In fact, I think he pretty much clean swept it, kind of like Gary Barnett did in 1995 when the Northwestern Wildcats took the Big Ten in college football by storm, winning the conference for the first time in pretty much a half century. And just a quick plug here, I put that into book form and... You can go on Amazon. It's called Champion Underdog. So give it a look. It's a complete true story with interviews and anecdotes and stories from the players, the coaches, and looking back at how this team, this 1995 Northwestern football team, a team that had not had a winning season since 1974, turns out in 1995 they turned things around and they not only have a winning season, but they win the Big Ten Conference outright, they go to the Rose Bowl. So take a look at that against Champion Underdog. You can find it on Amazon. But enough about me. Let's get into part two of our segment here. And so we're going to start with news and notes. So first of all, former Stanford, Notre Dame, and Washington head coach Tyrone Willingham has rejoined the college football playoff committee, stepping in for R.C. Slocum. Now, Slocum has unfortunately been diagnosed recently with a form of Hodgkin lymphoma at the age of 76 years old. So we wish Coach Slocum the best, somebody who used to live down in the southeast part of Texas near College Station. I was an Aggie fan growing up in the state of Texas. I still wish Texas A&M well, and so I remember following those teams with the Wrecking Crew defense, the teams that typically were at the top of the Southwest Conference and would play Notre Dame in the Cotton Bowl traditionally for years toward the early 90s, mid-90s. So best of health to you, Coach Slocum, and prayers to you and your family. But back to Coach Willingham, Ty Willingham. He's an extremely bright and respected mind, and I think he's going to bring good to this committee. At least we would hope so anyway. Now, in similar bad health news, hate to start this podcast on a downer, but Terry Donahue, UCLA's winningest coach has died at the age of 77 this week. Now, Donahue was the first to ever appear in the Rose Bowl as a player, assistant, and head coach, doing all three with the UCLA Bruins, winning three of those Rose Bowls as the head man of the Bruins. He also led his sons of Westwood to 151 victories, 98 of them coming in the former Pac-10 conference, which is still most in conference history, as well as earning five conference titles out there. So you'll be missed, Coach. And then finally, Oklahoma, more troubling news with player personnel. So they've dismissed H-back Mikey Henderson, who was figured to be 
somebody to play more of a prominent role in the offense this year as the backup H-back. Now, he had been given the ball as a running back last year. He also kind of played tight end, fullback, like I said, that H-back position, which was really a, a hybrid of all three. Henderson has a warrant out for his arrest as he's being sought and identified as the third member of an alleged armed robbery that took place in April with teammates wide receiver Trajan Bridges and running back Seth McGowan, whom were both dismissed from the team earlier this summer. Now, more about player personnel, but more on the positive side. We look at the transfer portal, and just a reminder that the July 1st deadline has passed. So all players that have not already entered the portal will not be able to play this season upon transfer unless, of course, they file a waiver with the NCAA. Now, players have that have entered before July 1st but have not yet found a destination will be able to play this season. But the longer they wait, especially come August, the more they jeopardize their chances of getting any legit playing time this season, at least right away. So the players that have found a home are wide receiver Jake Smith. Now, he leaves Texas in a pretty crowded room but to go to an even more crowded room over at USC. So he joins fellow Texas transfer Malcolm Epps, a tight end slash wide receiver, kind of a guy who can play both. One of those players who's faster than most tight ends, but bigger than most wide receivers. But they also have guys like Drake London and Brew McCoy, who will be All-American candidates or certainly All-Conference candidates this year. Um, and they also got a couple other transfers, guys like Katie Nixon from Colorado, Taj Washington, who was a pretty good freshman receiver for Memphis last season. And I'm sure I'm forgetting a couple others. And they already had a couple solid recruits coming in this year who were in for the spring. So that's a locked and loaded wide receiver room for Graham Harrell and the USC Trojans. So I saw somebody post on Twitter that quarterback, Keaton Slovis really has no excuse not to lead this offense and put up big numbers, especially with Graham Harrell calling the shots. And Slovis, we know as a talent, kind of took a step back last year. There was reports that he was playing through injury last season, and it didn't really come out till the end. So make what you will of that. But by all registries, Slovis is healthy. Slovis has been uh, progressing this spring, and and the spotlight will be on him and those receivers, not to mention the loaded running back room that they have, especially getting Keontae Ingram, another Texas transplant. So there were three, maybe even four guys who played in Austin last year who are now over wearing the, the red and yellow over in USC. So that's one portal land. Another one, maybe even bigger and more important to the team he's going to, Isaac Slade Matotia. Um, I hope I pronounced that right. Inside linebacker from Oregon. He was their leading tackler last season. Teamed up with freshman hit Noah Sewell as really their top two defenders for the Oregon Ducks a season ago. He has taken himself out of Eugene and lands with Sonny Dykes at SMU. Now Dykes has made a big splash in the transfer portal, raking in a lot of talent. We'll talk more about them coming soon on this podcast. But Matutia is going to be in Dallas playing with the ponies out there. And then another guy, Karan Prunty, a freshman All-America at Kansas last year. I know it was at Kansas, but he did some pretty good things, and he was a 
a pretty tight lockdown corner, he decides to go to South Carolina, joining new head coach Shane Beamer, and will kind of help fill in some of the gaps that were left by two really good corners that have gone on to the NFL with the Gamecocks. So those are the three big names. Now, there's also a couple of guys who are still in the portal. One guy that we mentioned briefly on our last podcast, Demetrius Robertson from Georgia, he has not landed anywhere yet. Now, remember, he started out and was freshman All-American at Cal, then transferred over to Athens, really never took off the way that many people expected to at Georgia. So it'll be interesting to see where he lands. But then another recent entry into the transfer portal, Dari Rosenthal, a left tackle from LSU. Now, he was kind of competing with Cam Wire for that tackle spot, and they've got a really good unit there in Baton Rouge. So Rosenthal feels like he's going to get a better shake at either Baylor or Kentucky. Now, it's rumored that those are the two schools that are vying for his services, with Kentucky being the leader. I saw on 24-7 Sports that Kentucky has about a 66% chance of landing his services and Baylor getting the other 33% chance. So it'll be interesting to see where he goes. Baylor could certainly use the help on the offensive line. Kentucky already has a solid offensive line. And if he goes there, Darian Kennard and Rosenthal being the bookend tackles, that will make Kentucky that much more valuable in that SEC East. So we'll keep an eye on that. Now, getting to our play callers segment. And this is, again, where I take questions from fans like yourself. And we're going to keep it in the family this time. So some of you who listened to my previous podcast show called Bowl Full of Chips, I did it with my brother, Bip. And Bip is a guy who knows his college football. He's one of the more analytical and one of the smarter individuals that I know, not just from a sports sense, but from a business sense, from an analytical sense. So this dude, if you if you have the privilege of knowing him, he's a, a very interesting person to talk to about anything. He's also one of the funnier people I know. So if you if you feel my passion for my brother Bip, reach out to him on Twitter at BFCBip and let him know that uh, you want to hear him come on the show. I'm, I've been trying to get him now. He's got some family business going on, and that's very, very important. He'll be expecting a, a new one soon, and so I'm very excited about that. So that's kind of taking up a little bit of his time right now, but maybe we can squeak him on a time or two, and, and I know people really enjoyed listening to him in addition to me, or maybe even more so than me. So Bip's got two big questions that we're going to try and get to here. First one, he asks, who is most deserving of being on the hot seat between these coaches, Clay Helton, Jim Harbaugh, Scott Frost, or Jeff Brown? Who has been most responsible for their own demise and who is likely to dig themselves out, if any, this year? So good question, Bip. And of those four, I think given the resources that they came into, given their background, given all the things considered, I think that Frost comes in as the hottest of all those coaches uh, in terms of getting his job. Now, Harbaugh had a better and more diverse resume, but Frost coming off that 2017 quote-unquote national championship with the UCF Knights where they beat Auburn in the Sugar Bowl, that was a, a fantastic season. He came in as one of the best offensive minds. Some people were basically calling him the next Chip Kelly or the next Urban Meyer, if you if you will. 
And, um, you know, Frost made as much sense as the Harbaugh hire did. So again, Harbaugh had a better resume, but both were alluring alumnuses who had been successful at a place with lesser resources, right? So Harbaugh was at Stanford. Stanford certainly is a good school, a quality school, and kind of, he kind of got them back into college football prominence. And then David Shaw has done an excellent job maintaining that, save for maybe a season or two. But, you know, Harbaugh also coached at the University of San Diego, where he had to kind of build that up. And then he was in the NFL, and he took the San Francisco 49ers, took them to a Super Bowl, made them a, a force in the NFC, and then he comes back home to Michigan. And say what you will, and, and people who know me know that I am, a, I am not a Michigan supporter. I, more often than not, will try and find flaws and criticism with the University of Michigan Wolverines. But I have to admit that Harbaugh has done a pretty good job in the time that he's been there. The problem that he's had is he has not been able to beat the teams that Michigan fans expect and pretty much demand him to beat. He's only beaten Michigan State less than half the times he's played them, and he's never beaten Ohio State. In fact, Michigan has lost 16 of the last 17 to their rival from down in Columbus. So uh, that being said, Frost came in and was really expected to revive the Big Red, and that just has not happened yet. They, I don't think that they've been to a bowl yet. I don't know that they've had any better than a 5-7 and seven season. So um, all that considered, do I think that Harbaugh is going to be fired if they don't win more than eight games this year? I don't think so. Do I think Frost will be fired if they don't win more than eight games? I don't think so. In fact, I have the Cornhuskers if you check out my Big Ten preview on cfpcollegefootball.com, I have Nebraska winning six games and losing six games, but finishing uh, fourth in the Big Ten West behind Wisconsin, who will be a power, Iowa, and then Minnesota, who I think will be better this year. So all that said, I think that Jeff Brom is the one who has the most pressure to win this year, the coach from Purdue. Now, Brom came in and kind of started off red hot. They had a very competitive game against Louisville, uh, a Lamar Jackson-led Louisville, and, and he kind of brought this excitement back to West Lafayette, even more so than the exciting offenses that Joe Tiller and Drew Brees produced in the late 90s. And then, of course, there was that magnificent 2019 campaign where they throttled the highly ranked Ohio State Buckeyes. It was the Tyler Trent game and the really the even bigger coming out party for Rondell Moore. And a lot of people thought, okay, this is where we turn the corner. And Brom has done a pretty good job recruiting, as has Frost over at Nebraska. But Brom really has not been able to take the Boilermakers and finished in the top three of that Big Ten West. And I mean, you look at some of the competition, he's recruited better than many of those other schools, like Northwestern, but Northwestern has two Big Ten West titles in the last three years. It's going to be difficult to compete with Wisconsin, as it is for most of those schools. Um, he's actually had a winning record against Iowa, the other team that is considered to be near the top of that Big Ten West. But, you know, Brom has struggled to get his program over the hump. And I think that if they don't make a bowl this year, I could see him being the first of those four to be 
dismissed from his current position. Yes, he is recruiting, and yes, he was highly sought after, but he's not exactly a Purdue boy. And what I mean by that is Harbaugh is Michigan-made. Frost is Nebraska-made. And Clay Helton, we'll get to in just a minute at USC, Helton is kind of in that purgatory, or at least he has his fans in purgatory, but he's been winning at a greater clip than Brom has. So to answer your question, Bip, of those four, I think Brom has been most responsible for his own demise. And I think part of that is because he hasn't found a solid defensive coordinator and I don't understand what he's done this year. He not only has one or two, he's got three guys listed as the co-defensive coordinators. Now, the guys, my friends on the Eyes on Big podcast made a good point that it's probably that they're just that in name to put on a resume or to have outsiders think, okay, this is a guy who was partially in charge of a defense but speaking as a former defensive coordinator, speaking as a former football coach, I know that more than one cook in the kitchen is not the best recipe for success. In fact, I really can't think of any who have done it, especially on the defensive side. So if you think about it, you've got, I, I've seen some schools where they'll say we have a run game coordinator and a passing game coordinator, both on offense and on defense or on vice versa. And I just don't know how that necessarily works, especially on defense, because when push comes to shove on defense, if it's, say, third and medium, who's going to get the final say? And, yeah, you can scout a team and say, well, their tendency says that they're going to run here, so let's give the call to our run game coordinator. But it doesn't always work out magically that way. So, uh, again, my spiel will end here, and I say that, having one solid defensive coordinator is going to do wonders. And I don't know that he has that yet. I think bringing in Brad Lambert from Marshall, where the Thundering Herd have had one of the top defenses the last two years under his march. And he was also a pretty well-tenured coach at Charlotte before that. But, you know, teaming up with Anthony Poindexter and they've got another guy there as well. And I can't think of who it is off the top of my head. But nonetheless, I think that those are issues. And I think also... The fact that they really have not had a steady quarterback. They've played three or four different quarterbacks just in the last two years, and that's not necessarily Brahms' fault, but um, they've got to have somebody to throw to those receivers. I think the receiving core will be down a little bit this year. They they haven't had a, a back up until Xander Horvath last year, but I think that he could be utilized more. But again, it comes down to that defense. You can score and score and score, but if your defenses are not going to hold cake, then you're going to continue to finish mid or bottom part of that Big Ten West, which some people don't have a high opinion of anyway. But that's another topic another time. So the one that I think will most likely dig himself out of trouble this year, Cy, will be Clay Helton. Now, I don't have anything against Clay Helton, but I feel for the USC Trojan fans. Now, the Trojans should be the favorite to win the Pac-12 South and are likely to win the South, especially now that Arizona State has some issues to deal with, and USC has won four of the last five against the Sun Devils anyway. Utah could still come out as the sleeper, not just in the South, but in that entire conference, but I want to remind you that the Utes play at the Coliseum in Los Angeles, where they've only won once in their history, and that was back in 1916. So they have won three times against USC since joining the Pac-12, 
but all three times came in Salt Lake City, and they play in L.A. this year. Now, I think Helton's doing it right by having good coaches under him. He's got offensive coordinator Graham Harrell, who we talked about, defensive coordinator Todd Orlando, and a recruiter like Dante Williams, who's considered to be a top-five recruiter in the country, not just in the Pac-12. He's their cornerbacks coach, and we've seen them with some pretty stout defenders on the outside up and press man. But even still, Helton's not going to give USC fans what they want, a Pac-12 championship or a college football playoff appearance this year. So they'll likely hope, fans will, that Luke Fickle wants to come to the City of Angels and follow his former AD, can't think of his name at the moment, uh, Mike Bond, I think, but nonetheless, fans can still hold up the spread index and middle fingers with the other three fingers tucked in, or in other words, holding up that V for victory, but it won't be V for victory. It'll be because they hope to say peace to Helton and then curve those fingers inward repeatedly and give a come hither suggestive gesture to Fickle and hopefully welcome a legit championship contender. Now, the next question that Bip has for us, he says, which group of five team do you see possibly doing what Coastal Carolina did in 2020, seemingly coming out of nowhere and not just winning, but winning a lot and looking good and doing it. In other words, which group of five team currently is off the radar do you think could end up in the top 25 by the end of 2021, a la San Jose State, Ball State, or higher even, like Louisiana, Liberty, BYU, or Coastal Carolina last year? Well, let's take a look at a few teams that I have in mind. That First off is Liberty. Now, this is a team that's a fan and media darling, but to exceed common expectations, they'll need to go 10-2 and two or better and win against Ole Miss or Louisiana, whom they play three weeks apart, separated by a bye in between. Now, their schedule's pretty weak until that point, so they're going to need to win one or maybe even both of those games to finish in the top 25, assuming that they don't slip up prior to that. A true Heisman campaign from Malik Willis into November will also help, and he has the weapons around him, plus Hugh Freeze, to light up the scoreboards with seven of his eight top receivers back, plus Joshua Mack and electric Shedrill Lewis in the backfield. A good defense returns too, but again, to gain or maintain upward position in the polls, they've got to beat Ole Miss or Louisiana, and Louisiana would be the bigger victory. And they get the Cajuns at home where the Flames are 11-1 under Hugh Freeze and should add four more wins at Williams Stadium coming into that Louisiana game. So Liberty's one. Another team that I think I actually have higher hopes for is SMU. Now the Ponies are starting to run like true Mustangs, untamed and wild. They'll have a good quarterback, whether it's Oklahoma transfer Tanner Mordecai or incoming freshman four-star Preston Stone and one of the best receiver trios in the group of five with Reggie Roberson, Rashi Rice, and Danny Gray, all who can fly, flat-out fly. They also have transfer tight ends Grant Calcaterra from Oklahoma and Nolan Matthews from Arizona State, who will create problems for linebackers. Oh, and they've got the AAC Newcomer of the Year last year in running back Ulysses Bentley and North Texas transfer Trey Siggers, plus their number two and three rushers from a year ago to boot. Now, the kicker here is new defensive coordinator Jim Levitt, considered one of the tops in the game at any level. Levitt has nine starters returning, plus they get a couple guys back from injury last year and add two high-talent transfers in cornerback Jahari Rogers from Florida and inside linebacker Isaac Slade Matatua 
from Oregon, who we talked about earlier in this segment. If the Stangs can get three of four in a tough stretch that has them at Houston, at Memphis, home against UCF, and at Cincinnati, yes, all four of those teams back to back to back to back, four in a row, not only could they be in the top 15, but they may also find themselves in the AAC championship game. Now, sticking in the AAC, UCF, Central Florida that is, is set up to end well if they beat Boise in their opener and Louisville two weeks later on the road. Their only remaining challenges are road tilts at Cincinnati and SMU, who we just talked about. And yes, Memphis will be difficult also, but they get the rival Tigers a week after a presumed loss at Cincinnati in a game I'm calling the bounce back at the bounce house. I see the Knights winning 10 games as Gus will add a good run game to an already talented passer in Dylan Gabriel, who shouldn't be stunted by Malzahn's direction. The Knights also got some help on the defensive side of the ball in the transfer portal in getting all-conference players defensive end Big Cat Bryant from Auburn and defensive tackle Ricky Barber from Western Kentucky. Both were all-conference players, like I mentioned. They also have the return of defensive tackle Kalia Davis. So UCF should be TNT up front. Kennesaw State linebacker Bryson Armstrong will team with middle linebacker Eric Gilliard to give them a good pair of tacklers in the middle, and JUCO-slash-Auburn transfer cornerback Marco Domio will help bring a boost to a secondary that really needs some help. Now, you want to know who's the team that's really off the radar, kind of like Coastal Carolina was last year, and is the biggest team that could make the, the most noise or the biggest splash in the country. I'm going to tell you it's Texas State, and here's why. Jake Spavital came over from West Virginia after directing some of the more prolific offenses in the NCAA under air raid disciple Dana Holgerson, who's had the Cougars of Houston looking like boogers in his first two seasons relative to expectations. But nonetheless, Spavital was really the architect of that offense that gave Holgerson a lot of credit and a lot of success out in Morgantown. Now, Texas State only went 2-10 last year, but lost four games by seven points or less. They also played seven teams that won seven or more games and three that finished with at least 10 wins. They returned five receivers that caught 20 or more passes, and throwing to them is dynamic quarterback Brady McBride, a transfer from Memphis who reminds some people of a Johnny Manziel or Grayson McCall-type quarterback, somebody who is nimble with his feet, but still keeps his eyes downfield and keeps the play alive and wants to throw the ball downfield. He's not looking to run. He's looking to move around the pocket to keep the play alive and hit his open receivers, and he's got many of them, in that scramble drill and light up the scoreboard. The Bobcats also have their top three rushers and four offensive linemen from last year, plus players that return from injury or quality transfers, a market that Spavital tapped into as TSU only brought in one that's right, one high school recruit this season. Some have criticized this approach, but if it works itself into a nine-win season or better, Spavital will have the last word. Defensively, Texas State returns nine starters, and Jake's brother Zach is at a produce or be let loose juncture in year three after coming over from Texas Tech coaching the linebackers three years ago. He is one of the conference's best and maybe the nation's most unknown defenders in cornerback Jaron Morris who had 69 tackles, 11 pass breakups, 4 interceptions, and 4 tackles for loss last year, making all Sunbelt. Defensive tackle Nico Ezidor added 9.5 tackles for loss, and some helpful transfers in the secondary should give the Bobcats enough stop stuff 
to allow their high-octane offense to outscore opponents and give the student-athletes from San Marcos the sanguinity to surface in the Sun Belt. Now, you asked which teams would be relative unknowns and finish rank against many people's expectations. But I'm going to finish here with giving you two teams that some are expecting a lot from, and I'm thinking that they're going to give even more than it's expected. The best bet of a college football party crasher would be Boise State. So the Broncos travel to the bounce house in Orlando to knock pads with the Knights of UCF. And though I think they'll lose this one under new head coach Andy Avalos, I don't see Boise State losing another game until the Mountain West Championship. This means they'll be 11-1 and and hosting the title bout in snowy Albertson Stadium, where they've won three of four games that they've hosted in the title game. That'll put them at 12-1. and And with 12 consecutive wins and likely in the top 15, they should be in the driver's seat for that New Year's Six appearance. The Broncos have not one, but two championship-caliber quarterbacks in Hank Bachmeyer and Jack Sears. Three solid backs in George Halani, Oregon transfer Cyrus Habibi Likio, and Andrew Van Buren. Plus their top four receivers from last year, including Khalil Shakir and C.T. Thomas, and an underrated tight end, Riley Smith. Defensively, they'll have a ruthless front four that we're, that we're used to seeing from the boys in blue, headlined by Shane Irwin and Scali Igihan, with all-Mountain West Conference middle linebacker Riley, don't call me wimpy, cleaning up behind them. Safety Kikalawa Kanijo is one of my favorite players to watch, even though it's a tough name to say, and he leads a secondary that was 29th nationally against the pass last year. But what about the Sun Belt Fun Belt, you ask? Well, they'll have their shots too. Louisiana is the other school that should be with Boise. In fact, they might duke it out with the Broncos for the New Year's Six spot as both are likely to lose their opener and then run the tables the rest of the way. The Cajuns open up against Texas and Austin for Steve Sarkeesian's first game heading the horns when some thought Billy Napier of Louisiana was maybe the better candidate to get that job. I know nobody's forgotten Louisiana's eye-opening road win at ranked Iowa State last fall. If they can knock off UT before the Horns have a chance to get their stuff together, look out for the Cajuns to flirt with a perfect record and a minimal college football playoff crash hope, provided the teams at the top all have one loss. Quarterback Levi Lewis heads it all, but contrary to previous UL teams that have been virtuous with the run, This team actually has the resources at receiver to stretch the field and open things up for that patented run game. Chris Smith is more electric at running back than the bruiser backs they've had of late, but Jacob Cabote and Imani Bailey fit their usual mold. They have one of the best O-lines in the country. That's right, I said the country, not just the conference, headed by Osiris Torrance and Max Mitchell. They may be even better defensively with 10 starters coming back, but insane depth at all spots, especially in the back seven. Their linebackers and secondary rivals many power five groups, and defensive coordinator Patrick Toney is a star on the rise and will be a Broyles Award candidate for top assistant coach. Louisiana avoids Coastal Carolina and gets App State at home in a conference crossover and may have to play them twice, as I think the Mountaineers will take the East. If they can beat Liberty on the road, they'll rack up even more points, as the Flames should be a 9 or 10 win team in 2021. Remember, you can find all of this on my website at cfpcollegefootball.com. Trust me, it's a wealth of data, insight, projections, and previews, which includes my conference previews, 
all conference teams, and a menagerie of minutia that will collectively help answer all your preseason ponderings and give you that college football fix you need, because that's what we do. We've already released our Big Ten and SEC previews, and the ACC is coming this weekend. So check that out and stay tuned to Twitter for all the new releases. Remember, I'm at champion underscore lit. That's champion underscore L-I-T. And now we're going to finish off with a interview that I was fortunate enough to have with Coastal Carolina head coach Jamie Chadwell, who led the Chanticleers from Conway, South Carolina, to a perfect regular season and almost a perfect overall season, losing in overtime in a bizarre ending against those aforementioned Liberty Flames. And if you think that Coach Chadwell is resting on his laurels and is satisfied with what they did last year, take a listen and you'll think otherwise. I am psyched to be joined by the man, the motivator, the maestro in charge of the champion shots, Coastal Carolina head coach Jamie Chadwell. Coach, thank you very much for joining us today. Yeah, I appreciate uh, being on here. I'm excited about it. So, uh, first of all, congrats on an incredible season last year. Um, I'm sure that that hasn't gotten old yet. Uh, yeah, I mean, you guys have been the talk of college football really ever since, I, I want to say, like uh, October. And, uh, you know, have you come down yet from last year's euphoric thrills? Well, I think you have to, right? Uh, because uh, you're only as good as your last performance. And, uh, you know, we didn't end the season the way we wanted to, obviously. But it was a it was a special year. It was a great year. And it's hard for coaches. You never – you know, you're doing through the season. You don't look back and go, man, how, how great that was. And you hardly ever get a time to, to do that. But uh, we did we did take some time to just to reminisce and, you know, and celebrate just how, how special a season it was. And, especially all that uh, the country was going through with the COVID and everything and not knowing you were going to play. Uh, and, uh, you know, one of those, I, there's years that you want to forget, right? Because <laughs> they're bad. Uh, that, that's a year there that uh, you hope that you can hold on to the memories for a long time. What was the greatest thing that you felt you learned from last year, both as a program, but also individually as a leader? Well, I think as a, uh, as a program that, um, Young people are resilient and that they will come together. They will come together for a common purpose and they'll drown out noise. You know, we weren't very good, right? Or, no, you're not going to be very good. You're not going to be this. You're not going to be that. And our, our players could have believed that. Oh, man, COVID's derailed this, derailed that. And they decided to say, you know what? Forget that. We know we can do X, Y, Z. And they focused on that. And so I think as a program, it shows you that uh, it's what you do on the inside. It's what's in your building that matters. None of the outside stuff is all fluff. And I think from a leadership standpoint, um, the thing that I learned uh, probably more this year than anything, and I think I knew it, but just how strong uh, you know you have a locker room. If you have a core group of people that believe what you're about and believe in your mission, and they can spread that to your other players, that so far outweighs anything you can do scheme-wise and all those things, you know. They did. We had a certain group that were uh, that were brought here four or five years ago, and they've been told they were losers their whole time. And uh, they they made an effort to say that's not who we are. And I think from a leadership standpoint, I learned that you know if you can put those people in position to really take ownership of it, man, they can they can they can do a phenomenal job. And they did. Those, those seniors did a phenomenal job for us. Absolutely, they did. So our our theme of this episode is spring cleaning, right? And so 
you know, as individuals, but even extending it into corporations, into programs like yours, um, there's always things that could be cleaned up to make you go from good to great. So looking into 2021, what are some of those areas that you as a program at Coastal are looking to kind of clean up and polish to make even make 2021 an even better uh, outcome? Well, I think, uh, you know, for one, where we, we definitely have to try to get better, we got to clean up is we were very fortunate last year from a standpoint of really didn't have a lot of injuries and we're not very deep. And so our, our whole off season here, was really focused on trying to develop some areas where if we do get in some trouble from an injury standpoint, that uh, we feel like there won't be that big of a drop-off. Last year, there would have been a huge drop-off, uh, and we know that. And so we've really been working hard to put those young people that need to take that next step, putting them in positions to be ready to perform if they have to. And, and this whole spring was towards that. And and so as a coach, I feel a little bit you know better about, all right, we I feel like we've – I'm not saying we're there yet, but there's a good start to where, hey, if something does happen, we feel confident that these guys that we've that, that have been practicing it are we put them in positions where they that they need their numbers called, they're ready to step up. And I would say too, uh, if you look back last year, we had a great year. And if you look at statistics, you know, the ones that matter, turnovers, red zone scoring, you know, all those different things. And we were pretty good in our in our conference and really in the country. Uh, but I think anytime you climb a mountain, and we sort of, you know, proverbially climbed a mountain last year, right? Most people, the natural thing is to do and look back and look what I've done. And what we've got to do is we got to look back and focus on how we got here. And then this is how we got here and why we got here. And then we got to do those better uh, and more efficient. And so for us, it will be trying to improve the areas that we improved in 20 because you can always get better and continue to raise that standard. And, and you win games by – uh, you know, not turning the ball over and being efficient, uh, you know, on your in your in your in your key situations, red zone scoring, short yardage, except third down. And so um, we got better there. We worked hard on polishing those areas, those key circumstances, that winning football that um, that uh, needs to happen this spring. Very good. Now, um, correct me if I'm wrong. And we talked about cleaning up things. One thing that. Uh, I know was kind of talked about that people didn't want cleaned up was the mullets. Is that a little bit of a mullet growing in the back uh, of your head there, coach, uh, to go along with the, your players? I, I do have a mullet going. Uh, Very I, nice. I, I should have probably had more confidence in them. I said, hey, we win this, you know, Sunbelt championship. I'll grow a mullet. You know, try to give them extra motivation. I probably should have said something different, obviously. But <laughs> I'm growing it out. Uh, and uh, now I'm not, I'm not saying I'm going to have it during the season next year. But uh, I am enjoying it this offseason a little bit, you know, uh, business in the front, party in the back, so to speak, here down in, yeah, sure. the, down in Conway. <laughs> so, uh, but I, I am growing that out right now as we speak. Very good. And, and for those, uh, you know, because we're, we're on radio right now, uh, those who can't see it, uh, it, it is looking uh, pretty fashionable. That is a nice looking party going in the back there, Coach. So kind of switching gears a little bit, following college football for a lot of years, coach, I've seen many hot young coaches go through what I like to call the stress of success. So 11 and one can bring a lot of questions about, you know, quote unquote, next steps, possibly away from coastal Carolina. So how do you shut out this noise and turn that into a positive for current players and future recruits to know that um, you're invested and, and you're not looking at anywhere else except for what's right in, uh, you know, the, the ground that you're on right now. What's, what message can you send to Coastal Carolina Nation and, and potential recruits that um, you're here and, and that's all you're concerned with right now? 
Well, I, I would say one, uh, obviously, I signed a, you know, a long-term deal, a seven-year deal. So that's, uh, you know, that's a pretty, for yeah. both sides, that's a pretty hefty investment from both sides there as far as uh, what you're trying to do here and where you want to be. Uh, and what I believe in is you have to be where your feet are. And when you win like that, especially, you know, this football, especially when people don't think you should, oh, man, hey, how are they doing that? We need to check that out, right? And so, and I think that's part of this natural. That's because there's so much money in football. And if you're not winning at a, at a high level, they want to find somebody that is and bring them in and try to do the same. Uh, but for us here, I, I really, I really feel that we were just start really scratching the surface of what we can become here. Uh, we have a vision for what we want those program to become. And obviously, you know, winning a Sunbelt championship is part of that, but we want to be a consistent winner. Uh, but ultimately, we want to be up there argued as the top G5 in the country. That's what we're building toward here. And we're not even close to that, obviously. But I think we can get that done here. I really believe that. Uh, and so we're working uh, in our program to be better every day, be the most consistent team that we can be, maximize the potential that we have here. But Coach Carolina University and this football program has, in my opinion, uh, has a lot of unlimited potential that we're just starting to tap. Uh, and uh, we want to see that, and our staff want to try to see that through and see what we can build here and, and how special we can make it. Absolutely. And, you know, you talk about um, Coastal being considered one of the top G5 programs in the country, and you're in a conference right now, the Sun Belt. It's as deep as it's ever been. So as we head into summer, there are three legit teams that have arguments to be ranked in the top 25, obviously your program being one of them, and that's just to start the season. That's never happened in the history of this conference. So what's helped this league become one of the better group of five conferences in the nation? Well, I think one, uh, you know, you've got really good coaches in this league. Uh, two, you have uh, universities that the Sunbelt is a football league and they're putting resources into football. They want to be great in football. We're obviously here in the South majority, you know, all of us in the South at some point. So it's, it's a deal. It's religion. And right. I think three, the players, you know, you're getting a lot of quality players. So you take, you take really quality coaches that have coached. I mean, if you look at the coaches in the league currently now, I mean, they've been, some of them been head coaches in the SEC. They've been coordinators of the year at, at FBS and had a lot of success, a lot of different places. And you, you tap that with the resources of what people are putting in. Majority of these programs over the last three, four years have, have put millions and millions of dollars into their facilities and, 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 and recruiting, et cetera. And the type of players that you can attract in these regions. Uh, on top of that, adding where this year, especially for us being on TV, we were on national TV ten times. The Sun Belt probably got more notoriety this year uh, than maybe any. Uh, and I think that showed the country hey, what type of football was being played there. And if you, if you know, if you follow anybody in college football, we did, our, our side of the division here, the East Division, got voted the toughest division in all of G five football. Yeah. It's like the SEC West every, every – it's a tough deal. And uh, if you're not ready, somebody can come get you. And so I think we've known that, but I think more important people are seeing that, especially, you know, last year you had, you know, you had two traditionally really good teams and then we snuck up, right, and, and had a great – I think I think people started taking notice of that, saying, hey, that's something built pretty legit. And uh, it, is a, it is a tough league. It's, a, it's hard every, every week. And um, – you're not going to out scheme and, and out some of those things. You got to be ready to go uh, every day. Very good. So earlier, me and the guys here on CFI, we talked about some of the rule changes as well as some of the rules that we think could be tweaked. 
Um, is there an area in the rule book or maybe even off the field that you'd like to see improved and polished to a nice uh, shine the next year or two, something that could be cleaned up uh, for the betterment of the game? Well, you know, I know one they're talking about a lot is the fake injury deal, you know, that the people are going fast. They're trying to fix that one. You know, I think that's something that eventually there's going to be – it's going to come to head. I think they're trying to fix it there. I think that's one that – you know, you can't question if somebody gets injured, obviously, but some of these are so obvious when they happen, right? right. It's yeah. pretty embarrassing, and I get that. I think that's one that you'll see clean up. And, uh, you know, I, I think with the way this COVID has went, from an off-the-field standpoint, I, I think you're going to see where maybe there's elimination, or, or I don't know if it's elimination, but maybe less of – of coaches being on the road and using more of the virtual things. I, I think I can see that happening, which I think is a positive thing, truthfully. I think yeah. that allows coaches to be more involved with their current team. I think that allows high school coaches to be involved with their team and, and not have to worry about coaches coming in as much. I think you're going to see some some change to that a little bit. Uh, and so, uh, you know, the thing that always frustrates me just about the rules is, that we, you know, you tweak them each. There's like one you're always tweaking. You know, they look at is a lineman three yards downfield or is he not? Eventually, eventually there's going to be something there where they're going. It's going to be one or nothing. You know, because everybody's going back and forth on that. And then the other one that always gets me is is we continue to uh, from a from a standpoint of blocking below the waist and all that. That one's changed every year, and it's this or that. And basically, they're trying to get rid of it, but some coaches don't want them to, and they always tweak it to make it harder and harder. Uh, you know, I think sometimes we make these to try to appease certain people and say, hey, what's best for, you know, all of college football. And so, but hopefully, uh, you know, the, for the most part, we got a good game, right? It's fun to watch. There's a lot of positives going on there. Sometimes if you do too much, you make it boring. And uh, once you do that, you lose, you lose the excitement and the, and, the, and the pageantry of what people love about college football. Yeah, it's <clears throat> like you said, it's, it's like religion, you know, I mean, a lot of, a lot of, uh, a lot of followers, and for all good reasons, good parallels. Coach, I got to say, I'm really glad we had the opportunity to chat today, and we thank you for joining us on our show. Um, you know, listen, continue the good that you're doing. I can honestly say from college football people everywhere, what's happening at Coastal is what continues to make this game great, better than any other product out there. So please keep up the good work. God bless, and hopefully we can hook up again sometime, Coach. I hope so, too. We hope to see you in Conway for a game now. Appreciate you very much. All right, that was Coach Jamie Chadwell, one of my favorites. Even before I did that interview, just a, a real down-to-earth guy, very humble, man of faith, man of conviction and belief, and somebody who is going to have the back of his players before anything else. He's not somebody who is easily bought. He's not somebody who's trying to build up his name. He's trying to build up his program because he realizes that it's those players and it's all the things that are inside that program well before it's Jamie Chadwell. So just a great talk, great interview, and best of luck to him and the Shants as they look to repeat as Sunbelt champions this year. And again, I know that COVID last year kind of crowned Coastal Carolina and Louisiana as co-champs, but Coastal beat them head-to-head -head in the regular season, and I've always been of the belief you beat a an opponent head-to-head, -head, you're the champ if all things are equal. So it's time to take off the headset and smile as we put another successful outing in the books. And you all know I love this. I'll talk college football all day into the night and next morning at breakfast if we need to. My thanks and appreciation to you for listening. 
I'm hoping you're here again, but whether it's your 15th or just your first time, I want to do it for you, the listener. You're my recruit, and I'm going to do everything I can to make you come back and stay. So tell me what you think. Tell me what you'd like to hear, what we did well, what we need to do better. Hit me up on Twitter at champion underscore lit. There you'll also find a link to our website, cfpcollegefootball.com. You can email me. You can DM me. Whatever you got to do, but help me out also by rating, reviewing, subscribe to the podcast if you don't already, and let's follow these steps to August 28th when Week Zero kicks off and we get this great sport back with pretty much full capacity for almost everybody. Those numbers are going up in terms of the schools that have announced full capacity, and we hope to be at 100% by August 28th. So this is Chappie. This is the CFP College Football Podcast. That's it. Lights out. I'm Chappie, and this is what I know.